Good evening. Good to see you back this evening. Take your Bible and turn Ecclesiastes chapter number 4. Ecclesiastes chapter number 4. I'm going to try to get a little bit further along than we did last Sunday night. I discovered that when the tornado siren goes off, you lose people's attention really quickly. It has been suggested, though, that it be the new template for our Sunday night service. Sing one song, take the offering, go home. Now that you've found your place, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4, put your finger there and close your Bible. I want to read you this passage in a modern version, and I want you to just listen, and then we'll go back and dissect this passage. Solomon says, then I observed all the work and ambition motivated by envy. What a waste. Smoke and spitting into the wind. The fool sits back and takes it easy. His sloth is slow suicide. One handful of peaceful repose is better than two fistful of worried work. More spitting into the wind. I turned my head and saw yet another wisp of smoke on its way to nothingness. A solitary person, completely alone, no children, no family, no friends, yet working obsessively late into the night, compulsively greedy for more and more, never bothering to ask, why am I working like a dog, never having any fun, and who cares? More smoke, a bad business. It's better to have a partner than to go it alone. Share the work, share the wealth, and if one falls down, the other helps. But if there is no one to help, that's tough. Two in a bed warm each other. Alone, you shiver all night. By yourself, you're unprotected. With a friend, you can face the worst. Can you round up a third? A, a three-stranded rope isn't easily snapped. A poor youngster with some wisdom is better off than an old but foolish king who doesn't know which end is up. I saw a youth just like this start with nothing and go from rags to riches, and I saw everyone rally to the rule of this young successor to the king. Even so, the excitement died quickly. The throngs of people soon lost interest. Can't you see it? It's only smoke. Now, Solomon has looked at all the injustice and oppression in the world, and he is tempted to think that it might be better not to have lived at all. At least that's the conclusion he draws in the first three verses of chapter 4. And then he made several comparisons based on what he saw happening around him and he offered practical advice for living in a transient world. It's better to live with contentment, to work in partnership with other people, and to lead a teachable spirit. So the first thing I'd like for you to look at tonight with me is learning to live with contentment. Solomon has already told the reader that work is a gift from God. But with all of, as with all of God's blessings, it can be distorted by sin. The problem, he says, and there are two extremes to this problem, 
Here's the man who works too much. We would call him the workaholic. He says, again, I saw that for all the toil and every skillful work a man is envied by his neighbor, this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Oh, first Solomon talks about what we would call the workaholic. He says, in reality, that person is motivated by envy because he doesn't want anyone to get ahead of him and his possessions. This individual, their life, their job becomes all-consuming. On the opposite side of that, in verse 5, is the man who refuses to work. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. So rather than joining the rat race, some people drop out altogether. Solomon says such individuals consume their own flesh. That's an expression that is the equivalent of uh, he brings ruin upon himself or he destroys his own dignity. We certainly have more than enough of that kind of individual in our society. The person who decides to ride the system, pick up their check, live off the government. Solomon says that such a lifestyle devours oneself. To sit in idleness causes your resources to dry up and your self-respect to disappear. One of the saddest things taking place in our country is the enabling of able-bodied, and I do want to make that notation, able-bodied individuals to fold their hands and do nothing and collect federal assistance. As long as there is any unfilled position, any unfilled job, we're doing a disservice to those able-bodied individuals who collect welfare by paying them to stay at home. Warren Wernsby says, laziness is a slow, comfortable path to self-destruction. He gives us the prescription in verse 6. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. Quietness can be translated contentment. Two-fisted consumption speaks about the person who is always grasping and grubbing for more and more and more. Later, Solomon wrote of the danger of greed when he said in chapter 5 and verse 10, He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. Obviously, he's saying they're never satisfied with how much they're getting. In the New Testament, the apostle Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 6, and he says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. The Bible really abounds with warnings and exhortations about the dangers of confusing material prosperity with the blessings of God. That is a problem that the Jews had at that time. It's a a distortion that we face today with the health and wealth individuals who say God always blesses financially. Paul wrote to the church at Philippi and Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11, he says, Not that I speak in regard of need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Sometime back, a survey of 2,000 people in the United States labor force was conducted to determine how much their faith influences their spending. Sadly, it found that faith makes little difference in the way that most people actually conduct their financial affairs. We buy more than we can afford because we want more than we need. Someone has said that credit cards let you start at the bottom and dig yourself into a hole. How many of you, and you don't really have to raise your hand, but how many of you have recently received a credit card application? We're told that the average American receives 32 credit card offers per year, regardless of their credit history. Nationally, the average American <clears throat> has four major credit cards with an average credit card debt of $9,000. And when you realize that a number of those individuals have been convinced that the thing to do is to pay the minimum amount allowable, you come up with something like this. A credit card with a balance of $3,900, making a 3% payment would require nearly 42 years to pay off. And the total of those monthly payments for that $3,900 debt is $14,530. Paul says in his letter to Timothy that godliness is gain, even great gain, providing that we mean spiritual gain, not financial gain. And the love of money is identified as the root of all evil. We are in a society that has that problem. So what are the danger signs of loving money? Well, John MacArthur in his commentary on 1 Timothy identifies five danger signs of loving money. Those who love money are more concerned with making it than being honest. Those who love money never have enough of it. Those who love money tend to flaunt it. Those who love money resent giving any of it away. And fifth, those who love money often sin to get it. Again, in that letter to Timothy, Paul continues in the seventh verse saying, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So Paul reminds Timothy that some people who have been caught up in this desire for wealth have been so caught up that they strayed from faith with painful results. The phrase, they have pierced themselves through, literally means to be skewered in every direction and roasted like a piece of meat. A painful-sounding analogy. 
The advice that Solomon advances is that, is that of balance. It doesn't pay to work yourself to death in the quest for the accumulation of things, but neither does one progress by not working at all. One should work to provide for yourself and your family and then learn to be content with that. The second thing he talks about is the value of friends. And he begins by talking about the misery of solitude. He said, then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother. Yet there is no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asked, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. It is the epitome of the expression, it's lonely at the top. It's likely that this individual has sought meaning and work and wealth, but has found himself alone and in a tough situation. It is often found that as one climbs the ladder of success, that they get increasingly lonelier and they have fewer people that they can honestly call friends. This kind of drive... Uh, this kind of driven individual never stops to ask the question, why am I knocking myself out and for whom? And Solomon exclaims, this too is meaningless and a miserable business. And then he describes the prophet of companionship. He says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. Woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. When we read those words of Solomon, we tend to think in terms of marriage. And there certainly is that application. But I believe the author has a much wider application in mind. This is for people who find themselves lonely here on the earth and who are wondering how to survive in this dog-eat-dog culture. The writer of Ecclesiastes wants us to understand that friendship is a good investment. When the author says in verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for the labor, the words good reward can be translated good return, for it means dividends paid on a wise investment. So the very best investment that you ever make in life is not a financial one, but rather the investment made in relationships. We will get the best return on that investment over all of our other investments that we'll ever make. As we go through life, there are two kinds of things that we can give our lives to. Some people try to accumulate possessions. They are constantly trying to get more and better stuff. It's attributed to the late Malcolm Forbes to have said, He who dies with the most toys wins. Since he's died now, I presume he knows better. If we spend all our lives trying to accumulate more and more possessions, we will never be truly 
happy or fulfilled. On the other hand, we can decide to focus on building relationships, trying to make friends and trying to be a friend. The first half of Proverbs 18, 24 tells us a man who has friends must himself be friendly. Now I want us to turn our attention for the next few moments to several of the benefits of friendship. First, friends working together are more productive. Solomon says two are better than one because they have a good return on their labor. The simple truth is that when two people combine their strength and their creativity and their talent, they can accomplish more than one person can alone. There's just something special about working with at least one other person. There is a bond that takes place when people work and serve together. Secondly, friends lend one another encouragement. Solomon says in verse 10, For if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him. Now, almost all of us have a lot of individuals in our lives that we would call acquaintances. But you will probably only have a very few that you would term real friends. Somebody has suggested that we have been successful in life if we have enough close friends to act as the pallbearers at our funeral. You may wonder, well, how can I tell the difference between acquaintances and friends? That's pretty easy. Just get in trouble. The people who are still around are your real friends. They may not be as many left as you would have thought. A friend is the kind of person that you can call at 2 in the morning and tell them that you need their help. And they don't ask, so what's the problem, and then decide whether or not they're going to come. They simply ask, where are you, as they're getting dressed. That's a friend. How many people do you have in your life that you think would qualify as a real friend. The writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born of adversity. There's a great biblical example in the relationship of Jonathan and David in the Old Testament. Found in 1 Samuel chapter 23, Jonathan had every reason in the world not to like David. He had every reason in the world to oppose David and not to offer David his friendship. Yet in 1 Samuel 23, when David is really down and Jonathan's father is trying to kill him, Jonathan offers to him his friendship. He really is a friend at all times. He also tells us that friends lend one another support. He says in verse 11, again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? I think sometimes we have a tendency to take a passage so literally that we miss the whole idea. This is more than just about keeping each other physically warm. We need to face circumstances beyond our control. 
Well, we may need to be able to gain emotional strength from individuals other than ourselves. Sometimes it's cold out there in the world, and these are the circumstances where we're facing a battle and we ask ourselves, how am I going to make it through this right now? This is the time that we need a friend to give us emotional strength. We all know the reality of life is that we encounter a lot of people who when we spend time with them, they make our emotional gas gauge go to zero. We leave their presence absolutely drained. They are so negative that in a few minutes with them, uh, our emotional gas gauge goes all the way to the bottom. But there are other people, and these are our friends, that when we spend time with them, that our emotional gas gauge goes all the way over to full. So there are two kinds of people in the world, encouragers and discouragers. And where would you qualify yourself? You know, I think many of those discouraging people have no idea that they're discouragers. But all you need to do is take a look at what is said. If every word out of their mouth is setting someone straight or telling them how they can improve themselves or their, their performance, then they probably have a problem in that area. And then friends give each other strength. Solomon closes his thoughts in this section with these words. Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. When these words were written, they were written about the, the military strategy of the ancient world. In that time, almost all combat was hand-to-hand. Soldiers went into battle with a partner, someone that could be counted on and trusted implicitly. Those soldiers then stood back-to-back. They always kept their backs in contact with one another, and they fought the enemy that came from each side. So friends never stab you in the back. They guard your back. A friend never puts up with gossip about their friends. Let me give you a definition of gossip. Gossip is when someone says something negative or unkind about someone who is not present, whether it is true or not. A real friend is one who will fight to protect you and your reputation. Solomon goes on to say, a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. That's a proverbial way of saying there is strength in numbers. Yet Solomon has more in mind here than mere numbers. I think he's trying to convey the idea of unity. Unity involved in the three cords that are woven together. And the last point is to learn that popularity passes away. He says in verse 13, Better a poor and wise young youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. For he comes out of prison to be king, and although he was born a poor in his kingdom, I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. Yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely 
also is vanity and grasping for the wind. This rags-to-riches story is about someone who rose from obscurity uh, to royalty. The story is a little hard to decipher, but it seems to be that the preacher is telling the story of a young man who rose to power unexpectedly, taking the place of the king who ruled before him. And though the young man had been born in relative poverty, he rose to the highest office in the land. This new king ruled over a vast kingdom. There seemed to be no end of the people who followed him, yet even the new king could not rule forever. Eventually, he also passed away and others followed him, and the young king was forgotten. Let me say briefly that one lesson we should note is that fame is fleeting. The preacher wants us to understand that no matter how popular a leader is, the day will come when someone else will succeed him and his fame will fade away. Reminded not to put too much stock in earthly position. But the main lesson I want to draw your attention to is the one that the preacher highlights. He stresses the importance of living with a teachable spirit. Notice again what he says in verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no no longer knew how to take advice. So apparently in his earlier days, the king took advice, but eventually he no longer knew how to take advice. This tragedy is repeated again and again in the culture in our culture as well as in the church if we are honest with ourselves we'll acknowledge that life at the top is fleeting our attention span is short our memories are non-existent and our only question seems to be what have you done for me lately presidents and prime ministers have extremely high ratings for a while, but they don't last no matter what political party they represent. It's even true in sports. The former Dallas Cowboy quarterback Don Meredith used to say about quarterbacks, today you're in the penthouse, tomorrow you're in the outhouse. What is true of quarterbacks is also true of pastors, state workers, teachers, small business workers, whatever, popularity doesn't last. So what Solomon's been talking about is the strength of engaging life together and about the importance of friendship and working in unity and building relationships. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we recognize that the truths that Solomon shared many thousand years ago, still true today, that we can still be caught up in the process of trying to live this life. We we lose our way. We become too consumed about uh, acquiring possessions, and we get to the place that we use people rather than befriend people and help people. And so, Lord, I pray that we'd be able to take the advice that's been offered to us by the wisest man who ever lived 
and we might be able to apply those truths in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.